why do people not believe in Jesus? If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, what is your reason? And I should be a bit more specific. When we talk about believing in Jesus, we mean not just believing that he existed. We mean believing what Christianity claims for Jesus. That he is the divine son of God, the only savior of the world. Why don't you believe that? How do you explain your unbelief? How do other unbelievers explain their unbelief? Well, I would suggest the most common explanation people give is a lack of evidence. They say there's not enough to convince them to believe. But in my experience, almost always, people who complain about a lack of evidence turn out not to have investigated the issue. They've never gone looking for evidence. Not in any serious way. If you're going to dismiss something, especially if that something might determine your eternal future, then at least do the work of investigating it first. Many people dismiss Jesus without investigating him. And so, lack of evidence would seem to be not the real reason for their unbelief. As we turn back to John's gospel this morning, we will hear the real reason that people don't believe. And we'll also be confronted with several significant reasons to believe. Our passage is here to show us Christianity is a reasonable faith. If you're a Christian, I hope that looking at this passage will be useful in strengthening your faith. And if you're not a Christian, I hope this passage will cause you to question your unbelief. We're going to pick up at chapter 5, verse 31, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter in verse 47. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1069, or in the larger print Bibles, 1655. But before we read this, we need to be aware of the context that this passage appears in, because the context is crucial for understanding what we're about to read. At the beginning of John chapter 5, Jesus healed a paralyzed man. And because he did that on the Sabbath, on the Jewish day of rest, Jesus provoked the anger of the religious leaders. They had decided what could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. And because Jesus not only healed the man, but because Jesus had the cheek to tell the man to pick up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath, because Jesus did that, verse 16 says the Jewish leaders began to persecute Jesus. And what Jesus said in response to that made them even more angry with him, to the point where they wanted to kill him. What did Jesus say that provoked such a big reaction? He said in verse 17 of chapter 5, My Father is always at His work to this very day, and I too am working. Why was that statement by Jesus so incendiary? Well, verse 18 explains why. 
Not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Today, when many people hear the name Jesus, their response to him is apathetic, just bleh. That was not how the people who actually met Jesus in person responded to him. They either loved him or hated him. The religious leaders hated him because he made the highest possible claims for himself. He claimed to be equal with God. And in the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago, verses 19 to 30 of chapter 5, Jesus Jesus explained what it meant for him to be equal with God. He spoke in detail about the relationship he had with God the Father. Their perfect unity, their oneness, the tremendous authority given to him by his Father, and the high honor that was due to him because of his equality with the Father. In verse 23, Jesus said, all must honor him just as they honor his Father. Jesus said, those who don't honor him don't honor the Father who sent him. And Jesus closed that passage by saying the eternal destiny of everyone is in his hands. He pointed to a day when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Some to eternal life, some to eternal condemnation. Those are incredible claims to make. We have to see that. If anybody else made those kind of claims, we would know they had significant mental problems. We would feel sorry for them, and we would probably try to help them get treatment for their problems. What we wouldn't do is worship them as God come in the flesh. So then, when Jesus makes those claims for himself... What's different? Why should we take those claims seriously from Jesus when we wouldn't and shouldn't take them seriously from anyone else? That's the question Jesus is going to answer in verses 31 to 47. So let's read these verses. Verse 31, Jesus says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures 
that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you will not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is God's Word. And it begins with reasons to believe in Jesus. Before giving us the reason people don't believe in Jesus. So first, in verses 31 to 40, reasons to believe in Jesus. In verse 31, Jesus says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. What is Jesus saying here? Well, he's not saying that anything he says about himself must be false. The point Jesus is making is, for his claims to be true, there must be some evidence beyond what he says about himself. If all we had to go on were Jesus' own words, we'd be right to be skeptical, Jesus is saying. But we have good reason to trust his words Because, verse 32, there is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. This other person is Jesus' Father in heaven. And in verses 33 to 40, Jesus points to three ways the Father testifies in his favor. Three ways... The Father corroborates or authenticates what Jesus says about himself. The witness of John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, and the Old Testament scriptures. To begin with, there's the witness of John the Baptist. Look at verse 33 again. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. When Jesus says he doesn't accept human testimony, he means he doesn't depend on it. Jesus knows who he is. John the Baptist was not sent to help Jesus figure out who he is. And just to remind ourselves, John the Baptist is not the John who wrote this book. John's gospel was written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' disciples, an eyewitness to Jesus' life. John the Baptist was a different person. And he figured prominently in the opening chapters of this book. The introduction identifies Jesus as the light of the world. And it describes John the Baptist like this. 
There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. John the Baptist was commissioned by God the Father and he was sent ahead of Jesus. He was sent to explain who Jesus was so people would believe in Jesus. The beginning of Luke's gospel goes into detail about the very special circumstances of John's birth. It tells us about the unique mission John was given to prepare the way for Jesus. And then when John grew up, he publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John announced that Jesus was the one who will baptize, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. John said, I have seen and testify that this is God's chosen one. And later on, when John's followers complained that Jesus was taking the limelight away from them, John said, that's what's supposed to happen. John said, my role is to be the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's all about him. He must become greater. I must become less. Well, so what? Why is all that important? It's important because if we are going to dismiss Jesus, we have to dismiss John the Baptist too. And that is not easy to do. We've seen in the previous part of John chapter 5 how clear Jesus is about his own identity. And if we turn to John the Baptist, we find a very significant figure who was equally clear about Jesus' identity. In New Testament times, there was no shortage of striking prophet-like figures. Men who could draw a crowd. But what made John stand out from those other figures was his dogged insistence, not on talking about himself or claiming status for himself. John stood out because he pointed away from himself to Jesus as the one sent from heaven, God's Messiah. As Christians, we probably don't stop to think how significant John the Baptist is as an ongoing witness to who Jesus is. Because Jesus did not just appear on the scene making big claims for himself. Jesus had a powerful messenger who went ahead of him making big claims on Jesus' behalf. John was a messenger who poured himself out so people would believe in Jesus. Of course, if we just consider John the Baptist by himself, maybe we could convince ourselves he was just a very compelling figure born in highly unusual circumstances who somehow got obsessed with Jesus. If we look at John in isolation, maybe we could dismiss him. 
But it's harder to do that if alongside the witness of John, we also consider the works of Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. Jesus didn't just make big claims for himself. He did big things that backed up his claims. John the Baptist announced Jesus to be God's chosen one, and Jesus did things that supported John's announcement. The Gospel of John records just a selection of the signs Jesus performed. Miracles that give us reason to believe he is who he claimed to be and who John the Baptist claimed he was. It's important to realize Jesus' miracles had a purpose. They were not just random acts of power. They were not done just for the sake of wowing people. They were signs through which Jesus revealed his glory. They authenticated Jesus' claims about himself. They revealed his divine authority over creation, over sickness, over sin, and over the supernatural realm. And ultimately, the greatest of Jesus' signs, his resurrection, that revealed his power over death. So it's possible to listen to the words of Jesus and dismiss them. It's possible to listen to the testimony of John and dismiss it. It's possible to look at the works of Jesus and dismiss them. But put all those things together and it all becomes a lot harder to dismiss. Because each confirms and supports the other. Then add to that the fact that Jesus' works are not finished. The New Testament book of Acts tells us what Jesus continued to do through the early church. And that work of Jesus goes on today, all over the world, including here in this local church. Just last Sunday morning, we had a baptism service. And wasn't that evidence that Jesus is still at work? Genuinely changing lives. Setting people free to live new lives. Isn't that what a baptism service shows? And don't we also see Jesus comforting people in dark and difficult circumstances, giving them strength to go on, guiding them in perplexing circumstances. Are Christians perfect? No. Are we anywhere close to perfect? No. Do we often hurt each other? Do we often let each other down? Yes. But spend enough time in the orbit of a church family and you will see evidence of Jesus at work. 
producing extraordinary kindness and forgiveness and generosity among his people. The ongoing work of Jesus in the lives of his people is a strong reason to believe in Jesus. The things Jesus has already mentioned are part of God the Father's testimony to who Jesus is. It was the Father who sent John the Baptist. It was the Father who gave Jesus the works that Jesus does. But now, Jesus points to a more direct way the Father has testified to who he is. The Old Testament scriptures. Look at verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is speaking here to people who know the Old Testament very, very well. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently. And they did. They knew the contents of the Old Testament. Which just makes it all the more outrageous that they don't come to Jesus to have life. We'll think in a moment about how they're able to study the Scriptures but still reject Jesus. But for now, the point to see is that reading the Scriptures but rejecting Jesus is a monumental case of missing the point. The Scriptures these people know so well testify about Jesus. How do they testify about Him? Well, it's no exaggeration to say the entire New Testament is the answer to that question. The New Testament is one long explanation of how the Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in Jesus. Think about the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament priesthood, the Old Testament kingship, even the Old Testament buildings, the temple, for example. All those things were foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus. They were speaking about him before he came. Even in their heyday, all those Old Testament things had a sense of incompleteness about them. And what about the Psalms in the Old Testament? Those amazing poems filled with such emotion. What about the prophets? Those wild preachers of the Old Testament who spoke about the terrible consequences of sin alongside the promise of God's grace and restoration. What about all of that? The poetry and the prophecy. Well, one writer says, Jesus satisfies the psalmist's longings and Jesus makes possible the prophet's highest aspirations. Jesus and only Jesus satisfies the psalmist's longings and he makes possible the prophet's highest aspirations. 
If you want to hear about the high aspirations of the Old Testament prophets, come back this evening and hear Steve preach in the end of Amos chapter 9. A passage full of big aspirations for the future. The Old Testament reads like an unfinished story. It has been called a a story in search of a conclusion. And all those aspirations, all those threads of incompleteness, they all find their completeness in Jesus. So it's not only the odd verse or two of prophecy that points to Jesus in the Old Testament. The whole of that unfinished story points to him. It testifies about him. It gives good reason to believe in him. And so, if someone diligently studies the Old Testament, yet refuses to come to Jesus, despite all the evidence that he is fulfilling those scriptures, that is a case of spectacularly missing the point of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus' enemies are doing here. Why? Is it because they're stupid? No, that's not it. The final verses of this chapter give the reason people don't believe in Jesus. According to Jesus, there are several reasons to believe, but he only gives one reason people don't believe. What is that reason? Jesus says, it's a love for human glory. Look at verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? In verse 41, when Jesus says, I do not accept glory from human beings, the point is that's not what Jesus is aiming for. That's not what he's seeking. Jesus' aim, as he explained earlier in chapter 5, is to please his Father in heaven. But that is not the case with Jesus' opponents. Remember, these are religious people. They pride themselves on their religion. But Jesus says to them in verse 42, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You don't love him. So what is in their hearts? What do they love? They love to impress other human beings. They love to receive glory and honor from other human beings. So, verse 43, they will reject Jesus, who comes in the name of the Father, but if someone else comes in his own name, they will accept him. What does it mean for someone to come in their own name? It means they come with their own reputation. 
They come with resources to share. They have things to give. Someone who comes in their own name can offer you a share of what they have got. Maybe by associating with them, you can get a bit of a reputation yourself. You can move up in the world. Maybe by receiving that person and giving them a bit of glory and honor, you can get some glory and honor for yourself in the process. That's what Jesus is saying. And isn't that how the world works? Not just the ancient world, the modern world. We try to impress each other. We try to be around impressive people, hoping a little bit might rub off on us. Aren't all of us suckers for people who will butter us up? Don't we love to be flattered? Especially if the person flattering us is subtle about it and makes it seem like they're not really flattering us. Now, we might not all like to be in the limelight so much. We might not all want to be up on a platform. But don't we all love a bit of human glory? We like to be liked. Now, there may be plenty of people that we don't care to impress, but we all have some people we want to impress. So they'll accept us. So they'll glorify us a little bit. And that is a barrier to believing in Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't butter us up at all. Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves. And the truth about us isn't very flattering. The truth is that we're lost sinners headed for hell. And our only hope is God's amazing grace shown to us through Jesus. Who enjoys hearing that kind of brutal truth about themselves? Alongside that is the fact that following Jesus doesn't bring us glory and honor from others. Following Jesus doesn't make us impressive to others. It's much more likely other people will think we're mad because we follow Jesus. Or even bad because we follow him. In fact, following Jesus might put us in line for some of the treatment Jesus himself faced. Rejection, maybe even a bit of persecution. Following Jesus in today's culture can get you labeled with all sorts of unappealing names. It can make you a bit of an outcast, which means not much has changed since Jesus first spoke these words. A love for human glory is the reason many people don't believe in Jesus. Their unbelief is not due to a lack of evidence. There's plenty of compelling evidence for belief in Jesus. But if we are in love with human glory, 
if our priority is to fit in with society and to be well thought of and get on in society, then we simply will not be interested in the evidence, no matter how compelling it is. And this can be true even of deeply religious people. That's what Jesus points out in the final three verses of the chapter, verses 45 to 47. These are Jewish people he's talking to, these leaders, and Jesus knows they have set their hopes on Moses. Moses was the one who led their ancestors out of Egypt. Moses was the one who received the law of God on Mount Sinai. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And these opponents of Jesus seem to believe Moses will make sure God accepts them. But they're dead wrong. We saw earlier the Old Testament scriptures testify about Jesus. That includes the bits Moses wrote. Moses is not going to be on their side. They are refusing to go where Moses' writing is pointing them to Jesus. And if we widen this out beyond Moses, we can say that putting our hope in any religious leader or any religious system does us no good at all if we refuse to believe in the Jesus we meet in the New Testament. And we've seen in the opening chapters of John's Gospel, the Jesus we meet in the New Testament is not just a teacher, not just a prophet, not just a good example for us to follow. Of course, he's all those things, but the New Testament insists he is so much more. Jesus himself insists he is so much more. He claims to be the Son of God who is equal with God. His claims are backed up by the witness of John the Baptist, by the Old Testament scriptures, and by Jesus' own works, both in the past and still today. The power he showed in his miracles, the power he showed in rising from the dead, and the power he continues to show today as he changes lives still around the world. So if you are a Christian, can you see that you have a reasonable faith? You have good reason for believing the things Jesus said about himself. And if you're not a Christian, are you willing to admit your unbelief isn't down to a lack of evidence? Will you admit it's down to a love for human glory? Are you willing to let that go? And consider the reasons to believe in Jesus. Are you willing to follow the evidence, even if it brings you human scorn and rejection? Before we sing, let's take a moment to respond quietly and personally to this. Let's just consider what this passage has told us 
and what our own response is going to be. We'll just do that quietly before we sing. Our last two songs are a commitment to set aside our love for human glory, to come to God humbly with empty hands, glorying in his greatness and his grace. Jesus, my only hope, and then I will glory in my Redeemer.
May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, may he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.